a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm glad you could join us today. By the way, I have some great sponsors. I want to give a quick shout out to them. MonticelloCollege.org, Pure-Light.com, HSLAmmo.com. And I'm happy to welcome the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. This will be of a special interest uh, to my friends in the Utah area, particularly those who are part of the mass exodus of people moving to the Intermountain West. If you're looking for a home, I'll uh, show you how to get in touch with the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. We welcome them aboard and encourage you to uh, contact our sponsors. Let them know, hey, I listen to the show, and hopefully if you need their product, you need their service, you know, you'll do business with them or maybe refer somebody who will. You'll find a link to all the sponsors in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. So, I'm seeing a pattern, and, and you know what? Maybe I'm seeing this wrong. I mean, there's, it's totally possible that maybe I'm just, you know, my imagination's running away with me, but it seems that right now we are seeing a very strong push on the part of the mainstream media as well as certain political leaders to not only uh, create the impression that, boy, there's just some kind of violence going on here. There's gun violence everywhere. I, I keep hearing the term, oh, the mass shootings. Mass shootings are off the charts this year. And I can't help but think, ah, this all seems to be leaning towards a push for folks, I'm sorry, but we've just got to take away the guns. We tried it, and for a couple hundred years, you know, we did okay, but you just can't trust the public with private firearms ownership, and so we've got to turn them in. That's where I believe this is headed. And by the way, for the record, I think that is possibly the most stupid and suicidal policy that any politician can ever embrace. And I, I, I don't mean to sound like I'm beating my chest here. I'm just simply acknowledging there is no way on earth that the millions, tens of millions of Americans who have armed themselves over the past 10, 15, 20 years, the last two years especially, there's no way they're going to give up their guns. So if, if you're someone who wants to see bloodshed, you want to see some of the ugliest things that you'll ever see in your life, well, keep encouraging those politicians to do something and get tough on crime and, you know, make sure that gun violence is being addressed. And those of you in the media who keep beating this drum, too. You know, I, I hope that when you get what you are angling for, you recognize that uh, this is what you asked for. This is what you wanted. Meanwhile, tens of millions, perhaps hundreds of millions of peaceful citizens who own firearms and have committed no crime and have no inclination to commit crime or violence against anybody are in very real danger of becoming criminals. Not because they've done something wrong, but simply because someone with a pen put words on paper and said, there, now it's official, I can treat you like a criminal. Don't treat them like criminals. Don't treat us like criminals. You won't like us when we're criminals. We simply want to be left alone. But I think, you know, this and this is where, you know, maybe I've gone off the rails for some people. If I understand if, if you just can't go there with me, I think that we are being 
conditioned or at least trying to be pushed into believing that, boy, there's such a surge of violence right now in America. The only solution is we've got to disarm the people who are dangerous. And I just have this sneaking suspicion that the people who are deemed dangerous are going to be anyone who they're going to be the people who believe in freedom. Not the ones who are out there actually burning, you know, down businesses, looting businesses, stealing, robbing, raping, etc. You know, the aggrieved ones who we're supposed to just try to understand why they're doing this. So let me unpack this just a little bit. Today, uh, the Biden administration announced there will be new, you know, direction for the federal government in fighting gun violence. And and listen to some of the things they're suggesting. Uh, the president says we're going to crack down on gun sellers who violate federal laws with a new zero tolerance policy. Okay, this means the bureaucracy is going to be unleashed to go through and find reasons to either take away or deny federal firearms licenses to those who currently hold them. Now, just so you know, people who hold an FFL really aren't in the habit of cutting corners. It's already a pretty tightly regulated industry, meaning with an FFL, the the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives can and will make unannounced visits to your business and they will, you know, go through things with a fine tooth comb. They're looking for any discrepancies in paperwork. You're supposed to keep all the paperwork and so forth. I mean, it's it's not like there's already not a huge layer of bureaucracy that's keeping track of this. But now they'll be looking to create new laws that will make it ever more difficult for people to keep up with. And we're talking paperwork errors here. We're not talking about, well, they were selling guns to the cartels down in Mexico. That was actually our federal government that was doing that. If you remember the the gun runner episode that uh, Mike Vanderbilt and others uncovered a few years back. Biden also is saying that he will give additional support to local law enforcement to help with summer crime increases. I mean, this is at a time where there's there's a lot of serious talk in some communities about we need to uh, defund the police. We need to do whatever we can to make it harder for the police to get out there and, and actually work against crime. Look at California. And I, I don't even know where to pick. There are different areas in California. I think the Bay Area primarily is leading out here. But, uh, you know, petty larceny, someone's stealing stuff from the store. Police no longer are going after those people. They don't even try to stop it. I've seen the videos myself of people going into a CVS or Target or some other store. And, you know, with full knowledge, they're being filmed. They're they're on video. They're not even trying to hide their face. And they go into the cosmetic section or whatever section, scoop hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of product into a bag and walk out like, yeah, I'm owed this. So Uncle Sugar's going to throw a few, you know, hundred million dollars at your city, you know, to maybe hire some more people to shake their finger and say, now there's a better and more constructive way to handle this <laughs> kind of behavior. They're also looking to invest in community violence intervention programs, expanding summer employment and services, particularly for teens and young adults and helping formerly incarcerated individuals successfully reenter their communities. Look, I I can't begin to put into words what a, what a clown world we live in. I guess the only thing in honk honk, here we are. We are in clown world. When you have politicians, take for instance Maxine Waters, 
who will sit there and actively encourage people to riot, encourage people to confront and to, to get violent in the streets with impunity. And as long as you are on the correct side of this political equation, well, by gosh, they will absolutely, you know, just stand up for you. And, you know, there's legal organizations that bail Antifa out of jail as soon as they're arrested for things like attempted arson, for things like assault, not just on uh, civilians, but also on, you know, law enforcement people. It's it's pretty crazy. There's a definite double standard here. And I've heard it. I've heard it at least proposed or the, the idea floated around. Maybe this is being done on purpose. Maybe there are people in power who are trying to provoke the citizenry into lashing out, into essentially throwing off the gloves and saying, enough, we're going to clean up this mess and, you know, we're going to start hanging up Antifa types like Christmas ornaments. Now, I don't advocate that, but I'm saying the the provocation and, and the willingness to turn a blind eye to actual violence and property damage that's been done primarily by, you know, the anti-fascist fascists among us. It does seem kind of curious. But, of course, the attention is, no, 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 the, the real danger, what's really scary in America is all these alleged white supremacists that are out there, you know, victimizing society and going to take over the government. Why don't you know they planned an insurrection on January 6th? Except it looks more and more like the FBI actually planned what happened there and had its informants and its instigators uh, guiding and directing what happened there at the Capitol. And by the way, do you know that not a single person, not one of the hundreds of people wrapped up in that investigation, arrested and sitting in jail, awaiting trial for their crimes against the United States, not one of them has been charged with carrying or using a firearm during that uh, ruckus at the Capitol. But it sure appears like we're being shepherded towards a solution of, well, there's a lot of violence going on. And I'll grant you, they're looking at the statistics, especially of some of the bigger cities. Yeah, there is a lot of violence that is, is definitely up. But you know where it's not coming from? It's not coming from your friendly neighborhood <clears throat> white supremacists in air quotes. It's coming from people who are being told, hey, you're a victim, and the only way that you're going to be hurt is if you lash out violently. Why would it make sense to disarm the citizenry? We'll take a look at the root of the violence. I mean the real root, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. So let's talk about uh, some of the violence going on in America today. And look, I, I think that there probably is a pretty good spike in violent crime taking place. If you haven't seen the most recent statistics for violent crime, you might want to brace yourself because there, there is definitely an uptick. But uh, what's the real root of today's violence? Right. I mean, could it could it really be white supremacist gangs? I'm sorry. I don't buy that. I think it's something a little more fundamental. In fact, there's a terrific article by Annie Holmquist on intellectualtakeout.org that explores the root of today's violence and chaos. And it actually finds that the warning signs have been there all along for anyone who was paying attention. 
Annie Holmquist says another weekend, another round of shootings. We've only hit the summer solstice and already we're off to the races of chaos and crime. By the way, per usual, the biggest rampage came from Chicago, where 54 people were shot over the weekend, 21 on Saturday night alone. But Chicago's not the only city having problems. A report from Minneapolis shows gunshot victims in that city have risen by 90% in one year. Dallas reports homicides within its borders are outpacing last year's totals. And she actually posts a chart here with the the caption, the person who posted that had the caption of pictures worth a thousand words. Atlanta, homicides up 58%, shootings up 40%. New York City, homicides are up 13%, shootings up 64%. Portland, this is where you'll need a chair. Homicides are up 533%. Shootings up 126%. Chicago, homicides up 5%, but shootings are up 18%. L.A., homicides up 22%. Shootings up 51%. Philadelphia, homicides up 37%. Shootings up 27%. Now, one of Saturday night's uh, shootings in Chicago brings the violence up close and personal via social media, which shows a gang of black males piling on top of a young couple who were celebrating a Puerto Rican holiday. As the gang scatters, one member stays firing a gun point blank into the back of the head of the male victim who then falls upon to- on top of his already injured female companion. Now, such blood violence and careless disregard for life is yet another sign that our world is falling apart. Annie Holmquist says for those who sit and watch in horror, trying to figure out where we went wrong and how to reverse course, she says, I have good news for you. There is a way. That way is a return to the spiritual. So, if you stuck with me this far, hopefully this is where the payoff is. I'm not just trying to scare you, but I'm trying to say, I think she has a point here. And if you are looking for a viable way to get things back on track, starting with yourself, this is a place to look. Look to the spiritual, not just to, do we have enough laws and do we have enough coercion to make this happen? Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn expounded on the lack of spirituality as, a, as the root of our troubles in his 1978 commencement address to students at Harvard University. Solzhenitsyn, best known for the Gulag Archipelago, a work based on his experiences in communist prison camps, addressed the decline of Western civilization. Although his native country was in the throes of communism at the time, Solzhenitsyn claimed he would not recommend the Western society of the 1970s as a model for the Eastern world to follow instead. The West, he explained, looked all right externally, but was in a sort of humanistic, materialistic malaise internally. It's people having turned our backs upon the spirit. This abandonment of the spiritual provided access for evil and was often fostered by the demand for freedom. But freedom alone does not, in the least, solve all the problems of human life, Solzhenitsyn declared. And it even adds a few new ones. When that freedom is separated from God and man's moral responsibility. The real crisis in our world is that we place too much hope in political and social reforms only to find out that we were being deprived of our most precious possession, our spiritual life. Boy, let that sink sink in for just a second. Here are some more remarks from Solzhenitsyn to the Harvard class of 1978. Quote, if humanism were right in declaring that man is born to be happy, he would not be born to die. 
Since his body is doomed to die, his task on earth evidently must be of more of a spiritual nature. It cannot be unrestrained enjoyment of everyday life. It cannot be the search for the best ways to obtain material goods and cheerfully get the most use out of them. It has to be the fulfillment of a permanent, earnest duty so that one's life journey may become an experience of moral growth, so that one may leave life a better human being than one started it. Only voluntary, inspired self-restraint can raise man above the world stream of materialism. End quote. Now, I want to add to this uh, one of the things, one of my favorite quotes from Solzhenitsyn was the realization he had when he was saying, bless you, prison. Thank you, prison, for revealing the truth to me as I lay there upon the rotting straw. And my mind came to understand that the world was not about materialism as we'd been taught, but about the maturing of the human soul. Now, I realize that's not a message everybody is ready to hear at this point. But I'm just going to stick my neck out and say, if you've stumbled across this program, and if you've stuck it out with me through the first segment where I'm ranting a little bit, and, and you're still, you know, hanging on, well, maybe he'll get to something good. I submit that it's probably something like that that you're looking for. And I'm okay with the fact that not everybody is looking for this message. But the ones who are looking for it need to know, yes, it's out there. Annie Holmquist, I think, lays it out beautifully. She says, the crime we see on our city streets may look nothing like like nothing more rather than senseless chaos. But she says what's really happening is a quest to elevate the self and to achieve material happiness. Many of these criminals have been taught that the color of their skin is the reason they have an unhappy life. That their poverty and the supposed oppression and abuse they've endured can be repaid through reckless freedom to take money, property, and life from others. Instead of being raised by whole families in the churches and communities which once taught people to live moral, upstanding lives in the sight of God, they've been raised by political and social reformists trying to take the place of these sacred institutions. In acknowledging this, we get to the root of the problem that Solzhenitsyn talked about, a life without God. Annie Holmquist says we have sowed humanism and materialism. Now we are reaping the consequences and the crime and chaos unfolding on our streets. Perhaps even in an, in an even bigger way than Solzhenitsyn could have imagined when he gave his address to Harvard more than 40 years ago. But she says there is good news. In his address, Solzhenitsyn also notes how the suffering of his countrymen under communism was good for them, for it turned them to God. That's a pretty large perspective, but I don't think he's wrong, and I don't think Annie is wrong in, in pointing this out. She says the crime and chaos escalating before our eyes is already causing us great suffering and will likely only continue to do so in the future. Sometimes we humans have to get to the very bottom before we can begin to climb out of the hole we're digging for ourselves. Perhaps this suffering caused by our quest for humanistic materialism and our abandonment of the spiritual will actually bring us full circle to the root of the problem and get us to re-embrace God and His ways, setting us back on the path to true freedom. Now, like I say, I understand not everybody is ready for this message. Not everybody believes in God. Not everybody, you know, believes in spiritual reality. Frankly, had I not experienced some of the things that I've experienced in my life, I would probably be a skeptic of these things as well. But that's not where I find myself. In fact, um, frankly, the older I get, the more I realize that uh, most of what I know 
and love about freedom comes from the understanding that it is one of the greatest gifts that our creator could ever bestow upon us. But it's not for everybody. You have to be the kind of person who can handle freedom or it will destroy you. Think of the people who are deeply in debt, committing suicide because they have you know, no financial hope whatsoever. Think about the people who use their freedom to go out and commit infidelity or to, to predatorily prey upon you know, young people sexually. They paint themselves into a corner of consequences from which there is no escape. Drug addiction, you get the picture. So what if the answer was as simple as getting ourselves spiritually back into shape? This is The Brian Hyde Show. show. Thank you so much for being a part of our audience here as uh, we are examining truth and light and just trying to uh, make sense of everything that is worth making sense of. I'm glad you could join us here on the Brian Hyde Show. I want to give a quick mention to one of my new sponsors, and that would be the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Now, if you are one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West right now, I don't really have to tell you, this is the hottest real estate market most of us have ever seen. So when you find the home of your dreams, competition is fierce. Your financing better be squared away right now. And this is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in. Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry. She clearly understands all the procedures, all the ins and outs of what the lenders as well as the borrowers need. She is the one you want on your side to make things happen when time is of the essence. And when we're talking from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, maybe even just want to refinance your existing home loan. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located at 619 South Bluff Street, Tower 1 and 2 in St. George, Utah. These are the folks you need on your side. And they can make it happen for you. Count on their experience. Count on their insight. Call 435-703-4522. By the way, there is a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386 Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So started out the episode today talking a little bit about, uh, you know, the the governor. I'm sorry, the governor. (laughs) President Potato Head is, is pushing hard for gun control. And he realizes Congress is not likely to get anything through at this point. It's just not likely to happen. So the problem here is... He's going to have to try and do it through executive orders. And these can be tricky, to put it mildly. So little things uh, that, uh, that make a, a, a big stink, but nonetheless are going to be used to incrementally move us towards, uh, towards greater and greater gun control. However, there are states that are saying, you know, that's not going to fly here. In fact, uh, Missouri just put its foot down by passing the Second Amendment Preservation Act. Let's take a look at this, and and you can can decide what you think about it, but Missouri's telling the feds, we will not enforce your gun laws. The article by Ryan McMacken on Mises.org says, on June 12th, Missouri Governor Mike Parson signed HB 85. That's the Second Amendment Preservation Act recently approved by the state's legislature. 
Now, the new law is designed to prevent state and local law enforcement from enforcing federal laws regulating private ownership of firearms. Here's what the act says, in part. The act declares that all federal acts, laws, executive orders, administrative orders, court orders, rules and regulations, whether past, present or future, that infringe on the people's right to keep and bear arms as guaranteed by the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution and Article 1, Section 23 of the Missouri Constitution, must be invalid in this state, including those that impose a tax, levy, fee or stamp on these items as specified in the bill. Require the registration or tracking of these items or their owners. Prohibit the possession, ownership, use, or transfer of a firearm or order the confiscation of these items. Now, we'll take a pause from the act for a moment. And again, Ryan McMacken says the act also opens up law enforcement officials and other state state personnel to legal penalties if they do enforce firearms laws. In fact, it says it specifies that any entity or person who knowingly acts under the color of any federal or state law to deprive a Missouri citizen of the rights and privileges insured by the federal and state constitutions to keep and bear arms must be liable to the injured party for redress, including monetary damages in the amount of $50,000 per occurrence and injunctive relief. Sovereign immunity shall not be a defense. End quote. So basically, the law attempts to do two different things. First is to declare certain federal laws invalid within the state. The second is to state that police are prohibited from providing material aid and support to federal officials seeking to prosecute Missouri residents under federal gun laws. The first aspect of the legislation is on shaky ground. The second aspect, however, has the potential to have a real effect on the enforcement of federal gun laws in the state. Now, here's the, here's the key distinction. The state isn't claiming to invalidate federal gun laws, but they don't have to help to enforce them. Ryan McMacken says naturally gun control advocates and opponents of decentralization have condemned the bill, mostly on the grounds of the legal doctrines and federal preemption and federal supremacy. But that only applies to the part of the bill claiming to invalidate federal law. National Public Radio, for instance, quotes law professor Stephen Vladek, who states, If I'm a resident of Missouri, I am no less subject to federal gun laws today than before the law was passed. Now, this is true in the strict legal sense. Federal gun laws have not actually been repealed in Missouri, and the federal government can still draw upon its own resources to attempt to enforce these laws within the state. Now, on the other hand... By directing state officials to not enforce federal laws in the state, the new act makes it more difficult to enforce federal law and deprives the federal government of resources it has long assumed it could call upon whenever it wanted. I mean, after all, the federal government has long regarded state and local police as valuable partners who act as informants and provide personnel, firepower, jails, and other amenities that make it easier for federal officials to arrest and prosecute locals. Now, if the new Missouri legislation truly leads to a situation in which federal officials can't count on any state or local manpower, this will mean a de facto decline in the ability of federal officials to enforce federal law in the state. Now, if you're wondering, that's not unprecedented. During the 1850s, for example, state governments passed laws prohibiting state officials from assisting federal agents who sought to enforce the Federal Fugitive Slave Acts. But there's a much more recent example we can look to to better understand Missouri's new law. We've already seen this tactic at work in the realm of federal marijuana laws. For example, when Colorado voters approved Amendment 64, which helped legalize recreational, uh, which legalized recreational uh, marijuana in the state, 
the result in practice was very similar to what Missouri is attempting. Amendment 64 declared marijuana to be legal in the state under a broad variety of circumstances, and the text of the amendment simply stated that marijuana would be legal for people in Colorado over 21 years of age. Now, this invalidated state and local laws outlawing marijuana. Of course, marijuana continued to be illegal under federal law, and federal officials were free to enter the state and prosecute business owners and individuals who owned, bought, and sold marijuana. Yet this rarely happened. Now, there were some efforts and numerous threats by federal officials to crack down on locals in Colorado, but those efforts proved to be anemic. They know they're outnumbered, right? They know that there's just too many people disregarding their law. So it should be noted that the Colorado Amendment and enacting legislation was, in fact, much more mild than the Missouri legislation. The amendment did not explicitly prohibit state officials from cooperating with federal officials, but the result in practice was similar. State and local law enforcement backed off substantially from all enforcement efforts, and federal law came to be seen as an alien force working contrary to the interests of the policymakers of both parties. Colorado members of Congress from both parties introduced and supported legislation seeking to limit federal enforcement of marijuana laws in Colorado or states that had legalized the use and possession of marijuana. And Ryan McMacken points out, moreover, when it was thought that the Trump administration might finally crack down on Colorado's Colorado residents using marijuana, state legislators did introduce legislation specifically prohibiting state officials from cooperating with federal officials in arresting a Colorado citizen or a person lawfully present in Colorado for committing an act in Colorado that is a Colorado constitutional right. By the way, that legislation passed in the House but failed in the Senate. Today, federal marijuana prohibitions and enforcement in Colorado have been significantly limited and scaled back. So some of the lessons we can take from this is, first of all, public opinion matters. Part of the reason marijuana legislation at the state level has worked so well in pushing back against federal law is that public opinion is on the side of legalization. And as more and more states move to legalize marijuana, it became clear that the public in general and many members of Congress had little interest in really pressing the issue. That is, cracking down on marijuana users apparently just didn't have much of a national support base. Congress and the White House have been unwilling to legalize marijuana, but they also have been unwilling to push the issue, apparently. State-level moves to legalize marijuana have not made federal law invalid in any de jure sense, but they've gone a long way towards doing so in practice. So the question is, can opponents of federal gun laws copy the Colorado strategy? Can Missouri succeed in the way efforts to legalize marijuana have succeeded through state legislation? Well, that's going to depend on both public opinion and the willingness of other state governments to join in. In other words, other states have to take similar steps just as other states joined Colorado. As Alaska, California, Washington, Massachusetts, and other states joined Colorado in legalizing marijuana, this made it all the more clear to federal law enforcement agencies that they shouldn't expect a groundswell of support should they decide to show the governments in those states who's boss. So a couple other lessons. Meaningful reform began at the state level and indirectly forced the hand of federal officials. It was only after states began saying we're not going to do what the federal government wants that Congress and federal agencies began to lose their nerve to force those federal regulations on states. In other words, the political strategy of effectively ignoring and nullifying federal marijuana laws has clearly been effective. Why wouldn't it work with gun laws as well?
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, please visit my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, and that's where you will find uh, complete show notes. Uh, you'll find links to the various articles or various guests that I have on the program. I would encourage you, you know, spend some time on there. I have great resources for wrong thinkers like yourself, uh, not to not to agree with me and everything that I say, but just to, to, to get a little bit to better informed take of some of the things that are going on and making sure that uh, that you're questioning some of the official narratives, some of the official stories that we're being told as if we're little children who have to be told everything to believe. I wanted to uh, shift gears and talk a little bit about uh, critical race theory in the classroom because this is becoming a huge hot-button issue. I mean, I just watched a couple videos earlier this morning of parents speaking out at uh, apparently a, a school board meeting in was it Loudoun County, Georgia, or, uh, Virginia, Getting arrested. Why? Well, because school board members didn't want to hear anything about these parents' complaints. And the parents were insistent, hey, you're going to listen to my complaint. My kid goes to your school. You work for me, blah, blah, blah. Oh, here's the sheriff and his deputies to take these good citizens away and trespass them from the meetings. I mean, it seems like it's becoming a very contentious issue, whether it was intended to or not. That's the end result. And yet... As much as I really don't want to see this kind of stuff taught, I think it's it's unnecessarily driving wedges between people and teaching children to hate. But I'm not sure that having an official law banning the teaching of this controversial idea or that controversial idea in the classroom is necessarily the best way to do it. Hear me out on this, okay? Because this is not a defense of uh, critical race theory. It's a defense of free speech. And if we say, well, we think it's good for the government to, you know, make sure that they are prohibiting this particular idea or that particular idea in the classroom. It just opens up the door to to where we see that that same idea turned around and jammed down our throats as soon as the pendulum swings and and someone who doesn't agree with us is in power. I mean, come on. If if you are a Christian, if you are a person who believes in the Judeo-Christian heritage, You've already seen that government force has been used to separate as many of your ideas from, you know, the public education classroom as possible. And I'm not, saying, I'm not suggesting that's the reason why public education classrooms were invented in the first place. I'm suggesting that there was a time when kids could recite scriptures in school and no one was concerned that, oh, my gosh, they're trying to indoctrinate them into Christianity or they're trying to uh, turn them Jewish, you know, by having them recite something from the Torah. It was just understood this is part of our culture. Some people believe it. Some people don't. Maybe the day started with uh, a prayer in the classroom. Graduation included a prayer. I don't know if you've seen this. Have you ever seen the baccalaureate service programs? I looked at the at mine from 37 years ago and was astonished That was purely a religious service. And by the way, it was held in the high school gym. Oh, wow. What lawbreakers we were. But there's another angle to consider here as well. When it comes to a critical race theory and the big debate over do we want this in the classroom or not. Look, I have no doubt 
There are those who would use the classroom and the captive audience of students there to push divisive claptrap like critical race theory. No doubt about it. They've already pushed a lot of other crazy identity politics stuff. And so, yeah, it it wouldn't be a surprise to see this at all. However, Robert Pondicio, writing for uh, the American uh, Enterprise Institute, says, we really don't know what's happening in our classrooms. This is what the debate over critical race theory misses. He says, as a new teacher in a South Bronx public school 20 years ago, I remember being surprised and a bit overwhelmed by the response of my staff developer from Columbia University's Teachers College when I asked innocently what materials I was supposed to use to teach a particular reading lesson. Mr. Pondicio, you're the best person to know what your children need, she replied. Now, he says, I thought it was an unhelpful response, even deliberately obtuse, but she meant it earnestly. Her point was that it was up to me to choose reading materials that would interest and engage students. Now, it was bad advice for several reasons that we needn't delve into at present, but he says, the fact that so much of the curriculum in America classrooms, in American classrooms, rather, is not codified in any meaningful way is an overlooked facet of the ongoing debate about critical race theory in schools. As he noted in a piece in the new issue of Commentary, far less external control is exercised over classroom content than is commonly imagined. He says, we know surprisingly little about what gets in front of children in U.S. classrooms. Lawmakers, advocates, activists, those calling for candy in every classroom, and those who think anything short of wholesale critical race theory, bans, or criminal negligence have missed this point almost entirely. Now, he says, if you think my experience was an anomaly, think again. A RAND study done a few years ago found that virtually every U.S. teacher, 99% of elementary teachers, 96% of secondary school teachers, draws upon materials I developed and or selected myself for their lessons. That's the teacher speaking. A separate study revealed that nearly three out of four social studies teachers agreed with the statement, textbooks are becoming less and less important in my classroom. Materials that teachers found, modified, or created from scratch make up the majority of what gets caught. Only one in four secondary school social studies teachers surveyed cited resources provided by my school or district as comprising the majority of what they use in class on a given day. Now, critically, this is not generally considered a flaw, but rather a feature of pedagogical practice. Teachers are trained to differentiate instruction, adapt, modify, and individualize lessons to account for disparate student interests and skill levels, and otherwise find ways to maximize student engagement. What this means is that states, districts, and school boards have less control over what gets in front of students than do Google, Interest, or Pinterest, rather, and the lesson-sharing website Teachers Pay Teachers, which, by the way, are the top three places teachers go when looking for materials. A perfect example of this curriculum bazaar phenomenon is the very thing that most triggered conservatives and drove anti-CRT legislation in 20-odd states. The New York Times controversial 1619 project, the Pulitzer Center, which publishes curriculum materials for 1619, claims on its website that teachers across all 50 states have accessed the Pulitzer Center educational resources since the project's launch. But he says only a tiny number of school districts, including Chicago, Buffalo, and Newark, New Jersey, have formally authorized 1619 for classroom use. As he noted in his other piece in commentary, This is a telltale glimpse of how materials find their way into American classrooms. 
teachers, either individually or in grade level or subject matter teams, decide for themselves what gets read, discussed, and put in front of children with little, if any, oversight. Now, he says none of this is to suggest that it's pointless for lawmakers to try to signal their displeasure about controversial ideas being presented as unassailable truth in schools, or that it's fruitless for parents to complain to school boards about objectionable course content. But he says expectations should be modest for any effort to control classroom content through legislative action. However one may feel about banning critical race theory from classrooms in a given state, he says don't assume it's going to change much of anything. The vast weight of evidence suggests the habits, practices, and beliefs of individual teachers matter much more. Now, in interest of full disclosure, my wife is a public school teacher. Now, she's a math teacher, so she probably wouldn't be tempted to be spending a whole lot of time on critical race theory. Not that she would be interested in it in the first place. But if you're not sure about what is showing up in your kid's classroom... It's probably because you're not as involved in your kid's education. I mean, look, there, there's once upon a time I might have suggested, you know, the time is just pull your kids out of the school system and do it right now. For some parents, by the way, that may be the right answer. I have two kids who are enrolled in public school right now. But here's the difference. My kids sit down and talk with me and they talk with my wife and we go over the things that they're learning. We talk about the ideas that are being presented to them. And if necessary, we have conversations about correcting those ideas and and where we can learn a more complete perspective on those ideas. I know it's going to sound like I'm bragging, but my kids are pretty sharp. And this is true of all my kids. Even even my grown-up kids are are really good about uh, questioning the narrative. They have pretty good BS detectors, far better than I had when I was their age. I don't think it's possible to sequester yourself behind a wall of laws or, you know, policy statements that that will protect you from from dangerous or ugly ideas like critical race theory. Instead, it falls on us to think clearly and independently and to, as best we can, propaganda-proof ourselves So that when someone presents really ugly, garbage-filled ideas, we can confidently just turn our back and walk away from them without ever breaking stride. Just something to think about. This is The Brian Hyde Show.